Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Again, I'm Pastor Brandon Linhart, one of the pastors here at North Main Street Church of God, and it is my pleasure to bring you the message this morning. We've been going through a series called Thankful Kindness. We're in a season of thankfulness. Actually, every season should be a season of thankfulness. Paul says, in everything, give thanks, and give thanks at all times. For all things, do we really give thanks in all things? No, we don't. That is exactly right. We don't usually give thanks in all things. Why is that? Because not all things we are thankful for. But we should be, right? In all things give thanks. What does that mean? As we read Paul's letters, he really extrapolates and pulls more of the meaning out of what it means to be thankful. And it is the kindest gesture we can do. One of the kindest gestures we can do is to be thankful and grateful. And we, I tell my kids this, be thankful for what you have, not ungrateful for what you don't have. You know, we can complain about all the things we don't have in life and all the way things are bad in life. But how often are we thankful for all of the blessings we have been given? We often focus on the negative rather than the positive. Remember that song? Accentuate and eliminate, right? Well, we can't really truly eliminate the negative in life. But what we can do is keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith for the purpose And for the hope of knowing that all of this that we go through is very temporary compared to the greatness of God and the glory of Christ Jesus, who we will be with for eternity if we surrender our lives to him completely and fully. So where are we going today? We are actually going to Philippians. I was uh, glad to hear uh, Philippians being read. We're actually going to be in chapter 1 today. But before we get there, I wanted to tell you a story about a selfish person who inherited a rice field in India. This is a modern-day parable, by the way. I'm sure this has probably happened before, but suffice it to say, this is not a true story, but a fictional story. So this person inherits a rice field. The first season, the irrigation water ended up covering his whole property, making it very fruitful, and it also overflowed. The irrigation fields in his property, they overflowed into the surrounding areas and his neighbor's fields, bringing a great harvest to them as well. But the next season, he decided that he was too generous in sharing his wealth by letting his water escape to others, so he stopped the water with a specially made dam from going into his neighbor's field. However, when he did that, he spoiled his own crop because it was too much water and drowned the plants. The irrigation water brought blessing when it flowed, but when it became dammed up and stagnant, it turned the field into an unfruitful marsh. We're going to talk about overflowing love today. Overflowing love should be the clear marker and evidence of the church. Back in uh, 
2019, we started our yearly theme. Our yearly theme is to take a fruit of the Spirit every year and focus on what that fruit actually means. And the fruit in 2019 was the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And we spent the whole year looking at what it meant to love. And we learned that the love that is written about in the New Testament mainly, not completely, but the vast majority of the love that is spoken of in the New Testament specifically is called agape love. And agape love is the kind of love from, Gen- or excuse me, from John chapter 3.16, which says, and you probably know this even if you've never been to the church before in your life, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That word love is agape love. So God agaped the world so much or agapeoed the world so much that he gave. And this is the kind of love that we are to have for one another. We love because God first loved us, we are told, right? It's that kind of love. So what is the simplest definition of agape love? Agape love is selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional. You've heard me say that since 2019. Selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional. It gives without expectation of return. It loves the return, but it doesn't expect it. It doesn't give in order to receive. It gives out of the abundance of itself. This is why in 1 John, John can write that God is love. Not just once, but at least twice. And the whole narrative of 1 John is truly the love of God and our love for one another and God. It's really kind of the expounding on the greatest commandment. You remember the greatest commandment? Jesus was confronted by a religious leader. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, well, there's technically two, but they're the same. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Agape God, agape others. You catching this? So I wanted to set the foundation of the basis for where we're going today. Out of a gratitude and a thankful heart, out of a heart of kindness, should flow love. But love doesn't avoid the truth, but rather speaks the truth, but it speaks it in a way that is loving. Love doesn't avoid what is bad or wrong, but love helps to define what is wrong by showing what is good. Does this make sense? Okay, all right. With that, let's go to our passage today. Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. I'm reading from the New Living Translation today, so if your version is different, it may sound a little bit or look a little bit different if you're turning in your scripture, and I I hope you will follow along, all right? Paul says this to the church at Philippi. Let me give a little bit of a foundation here. Philippi was one of his favorites. You're not allowed to have favorites, right? But Philippi, the church at Philippi, the believers at Philippi, it was his favorite. Now you could say he had other favorites, but when you read the, the Philippian letter or the, church, uh, the letter to the church at Philippi, it's full of just this affection. 
when I think of you, he says. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Do you think he thought that about the Corinthian church? <laughs> if you're a student of scripture, the Corinthian church was screwed up. Okay, and I probably shouldn't use the word screwed because it's derogatory, but the reality is, read 1 Corinthians, it's pretty messed up. Sexual sin, a lot of competing, my gift is better than your gift, you need to follow me, no, you need to follow me. They weren't following Christ, they were following each other and demanding their own way, and they were putting up with sin in the body of Christ. And so what were they, what were they to do? Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. He would not have said that for the Corinthian church. He did not say that to the Corinthian church. This is the one church he said that. Every time I think of you, I thank God. That is a powerful statement. Can people say that about you? Can people say that about me? Every time I think about this person, can they say that about North Maine in our community? I would like to think they could, but not everybody likes the church. And not everybody likes scriptural truth. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. Not a saddened or sorrow heart. Not with the weight in his, in his being, oh, like he's groaning as he's bringing his request. I think he brought, he brought the request to God for the Corinthian church, for the Galatian church. I mean, if you read these letters, he's really giving sometimes a very hard rebuke. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. I think sometimes he made his request with a heavy heart, with sadness, heartbroken. For you have been my partners, he writes, in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it in 10L. They are living, breathing witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he brought to them and they took off with. It lit a fire under them. The power of the Holy Spirit was in their midst and they went and did, not because it was an obligation, but they went and did the gospel and lived the gospel because they loved God and Jesus. And I'm now certain that God, who began a good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. He has full confidence in the church at Philippi that they are going to continue to live and do and be who they are until Christ Jesus returns. So, he says, it, so it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you, you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. So there were some churches, like the church at Corinth, when, when Paul was imprisoned, In the second letter, you can read, they got embarrassed. Oh, Paul, he's in prison now. God must be punishing him. There must be something wrong with him if he's in prison. And so they started to, like, distance, the, the Corinthian church began to distance themselves from Paul in the second letter because he was in prison. 
The church at Philippi were like, no, 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 no. We're going to provide for him his needs, whatever he needs while he's there in prison. Because guess what? Do you think prison in Paul's day was the same as the Butler prison here or any prison across the United States? Three square meals a day. It may taste like slop, but it's something. TV, recreation time. Guess what happened in that day and age? The prison did not provide you food. If they did, it was rotten and maggot infested. You're welcome, just extra protein. Dirty water at best. If you were going to be provided for, you needed to be provided for by somebody on the outside. And if you didn't have any friends and you'd burnt all bridges, good luck. Because you would probably die a slow and painful death of starvation and disease. But Paul, imprisoned. Now, he was imprisoned on house arrest once, but he was in prison, prison at one time. And he's writing to them, the church at Philippi had provided him food and nourishment. They kept a cycle of things going, like care packages, if you will. They provided him parchments so he continued to write. They provided him cloaks and other kinds of things so he could continue to stay warm in a dank, dark dungeon prison. You share with me the special favor of God both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. You aren't ashamed of me and you aren't ashamed of the good news that I've proclaimed and that you now proclaim. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I wish I could be there with you. I'm, <laughs> circumstances being as they are, I can't be. But I wish I was there with you right now. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in the knowledge and in, in knowledge and understanding and more specifically the knowledge and understanding of God like he said last week. Do you remember when we talked about the church at Ephesus? About spiritual wisdom? Numa Sophia? I pray that you would grow in knowledge and understanding for I want you to understand what really matters. Do you know what really matters? I had the privilege yesterday to go to Thirst, which is our state youth convention of the Church of God in Western PA. There were over 500 students there, pushing 600 students. I did a breakout session on biblical worldview entitled, What Do You Really Believe? And do you know that the statistics for Generation Z, which is the group I spoke to, born between 1995 and 2015. All of my kids fall into that range. I don't know how many of your kids do. But do you know the statistics are very stark? I've been doing research now on biblical worldview for about four or five months, getting ready, because they asked me several months ago if I would do this. I'm sorry, let me make sure I'm tying this into this. Okay. Can I tell you what I, and I said this in my class this morning in Revelation, I, I found this out. Do you know how many, and those of you who do know the answer because you were in my class this morning, pipe down, all right? <laughs> Studies of the American church. Of all lead and senior pastors in the United States, what percentage do you think hold a biblical worldview? 
And a biblical worldview, as plainly as I could put it, is to believe the truth of the Word of God and all it teaches. Yes, there's, there's prophecy, there's apocalyptic literature, there's poetry, but the essence of the truth of the Word of God is non-negotiable and is true. So, and, and, and what it teaches, okay? What do you think, senior pastors like me, lead pastors, what is the percentage in the United States of all denominations, Catholic priests? 41%. Now, that means 60% of persons like myself who stand on a stage much like this in any number of churches across the United States alone, 60%, 59% do not hold a biblical worldview then what are you teaching? What are you preaching? Do you know why the church in our culture is on the, on the downslope? It's because we're not preaching the truth of the word anymore. We're not actually, as Paul said, advancing or confirming the truth of the good news. We're, we're confirming platitudes and good-sounding things that make people feel good. And, and I'm not saying that that's bad. You need to know the good things about an eternal life in Christ Jesus and what it means to have a relationship with him. But as I've said to you over the past two to three weeks, living a life for Christ is actually living, in a, living right side up in an upside down world. The rest of the world looks really weird once you come to Christ because you realize the contrast in the way that Christ calls us to live and the way the rest of the world expects us to live and so they look at us weird we look at them weird but we have been called to live a right side up life in an upside down world to bring people into that right side up living through jesus christ so what are what are 60 percent 59 percent of our churches teaching if it's not a biblical worldview well, the Barna Research Group says it's a syncretistic worldview. Do you know what syncretism is? I didn't either until I looked it up and became very familiar with it. So the biblical worldview is one worldview, but there are multiple other worldviews. And a worldview is simply put this. It is seeing the world through a lens. It is your lens through which you see the world. And your worldview is comprised of how you were raised, your life experiences, traumatic events in your life. It could be any number of things. It could be the culture you were raised in. So your worldview is comprised of multiple different things. And there are basically seven predominant worldviews. There are others, but the predominant ones are about seven of them. There's polytheism, the many gods. There is pantheism, that everything is God. There is Islamic theism, that Allah is the one and your good deeds will be weighed against your bad deeds to see if you'll get in heaven. Based on the Quran, there is uh, a theistic worldview. We are a part of the theistic worldview, but there are other theistic worldviews out there. There are many different worldviews. I just gave you a small cross-section of that. But you would expect, and we take for granted, that the Christian church and its leaders are speaking from a biblical worldview perspective. 
You can't take that for granted. Test, test my worldview. You, you should do that. Test anybody you put yourself under the, um, not authority of, but under the, the leadership of by their own teaching. Are they teaching truth? And one of the questions I asked the kids yesterday, all these teens, middle schoolers, what is truth? You get quizzical looks from about 150 of these kids. What is truth? And of course, I got a couple churchy answers, which you expect, because when you're at a Christian conference with a Christian pastor teaching on Christian theology and worldviews, you're going to have some that are, uh, it's, 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 the Bible is truth. Yes. Is there a difference between the Bible is truth and your truth or my truth? Is it your truth, my truth, or the truth? And that's what I heard most of the kids say, but they have, because <laughs> they were in an environment where they probably felt like they had to say that, but many of them did talk about friends who have different worldviews and perspectives where it's about their truth. I'm living my truth. Okay, well, okay, is your truth rooted in the truth? Well, what is the truth? I mean, Pilate said that to Jesus when Jesus was standing before him having been arrested, right? But Pilate didn't stand around long enough to find out from Jesus what the truth is because I think Jesus would have reiterated to him what he did just a few hours earlier with his disciples around the Passover meal in the upper room in Jerusalem that he is the way, the truth, and the life. I think he would have told him that had Pilate been willing to stand around. So if Jesus is truth and all truth emanates from him, then who should we go to for the source of all truth? Some of you with hearing aids couldn't even hear that. Jesus. This is one of the things I told the kids yesterday too. I mean, I, I, this is a part of this, okay? In order to understand what a life lived in overflowing love and thankfulness to God should look like, growing in wisdom, knowledge, and understanding of the truth, then where does all truth emanate from? If we randomly just look for the truth and it just becomes my truth because I want to believe this or I feel this way or my experience says this, well, everybody, I said this yesterday and I probably shouldn't say it here because I'll get fired, but I'm going to say it anyway, is that everybody has an opinion just like everybody has a butthole. They all stink. Some of them stink, right? They're not all great. I know. Oh, come on. It's, but the reality is it's true. Any number of opinions exist in the world today, but not all opinions are true. Some of them really do stink because they're not rooted in truth. Well, what is truth? Again, I don't mean to offend you, but the reality is we are living in dire times. Would you agree with me at least on that? We have people grappling in our world, in our nation, in our culture for what is true and we have believed the lie that truth is what I make it or what I believe it to be. And when I become the sole determiner of what is true and I am a faulty, sinful human being, guess what my truth becomes? Faulty and sinful ultimately. 
But if my root, my, the root of the truth that I hold is in something beyond myself that is proven time and time again to withstand the critic and the arguments of the world, then I should probably stand on that. And the only religion in the world that I believe is true is the Christian religion, rooted in a Judeo-Christian principle through the Old and New Testaments. I said to the students yesterday, I said, what is the buzzword in our culture today? We have to be inclusive. What is inclusivity? I mean, it's not, it's a great idea. Inclusive, I want everybody to be included through this relationship with Christ. But that's not what inclusivity in our culture means. Inclusivity means you have to believe what I believe the way I believe it. And if you don't, you're a hater, you're a phobe of some sort. We have so many subgroups now because we've believed the lie that truth is relative. So your truth versus my truth, we now have subgroups in the United States. We are more divided as a nation. I'm going to probably throw this out there and be wrong, but look it up, than we were during the Civil War era. Or at least pretty darn close. And it's all because we don't truly have any foundation in truth anymore that guides us. At least during the Civil War era, we had a constitution, a declaration of independence, the Bill of Rights. Though we were screwed up in many ways and didn't do the right things all the time, we could look to the documents that were rooted in a Judeo-Christian principle to say that should be our marker to point us in the right direction. And we made amendments at the right times in our own history to course correct and to do things that are biblical and right. But we live in a day and age where truth is relative, where the Bible isn't true. It's a fictional story for many people. And whatever your truth is compared to my truth is okay. But what happens when your truth and my truth don't align? There is not inclusivity in that. There is rejection and there could be outright violence. You ever see that on the streets anywhere? Do you see picketing, fighting, infighting? People killing other people? For an ideology and a worldview. Oftentimes it is not rooted in truth, but rooted in how I feel or what I think. I want you to grow in knowledge and understanding, but the knowledge and understanding not of a worldview, but of God through Christ Jesus and the Word. I want you to grow in that understanding and that truth so that your love will overflow more and more. If you truly know the Word of God, you're not going to be going with the sword to stab people. You're going to be going with love to bring people in. This doesn't set well with many of our churches. We've actually taken on the ideology that we go and do likewise rather than going and sharing the truth of God's love by loving others into the kingdom. Instead, 
we are great at cutting people down. And I dare say it's not because of the 41% teaching a biblical worldview. I dare say it's because of the 60% of our churches that are teaching an ideology not rooted in truth, but rooted in feel-good feelings. You know why we get called hypocrites a lot? It's because we're not preaching the word. And we're also not living by it. It's not just teaching a biblical worldview or believing a biblical worldview. It's living a biblical worldview. I haven't even gotten to my points. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. There's the fruit of your salvation. Did you catch that? The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Here's the key point. Overflowing love comes from a heart of thankfulness. So what does Paul instruct them to do? He instructs and prays for them to have a love that overflows. Now, we are good at pointing the finger and saying, and I'm probably doing a little bit of this this morning, I'm not pointing at any one church, any one denomination, but if the facts are the facts, that there are nearly 60% that are not teaching, preaching, or leading a biblical worldview in our churches across this nation, then what are, what are, we, what are we learning? What are, what are we teaching? See, love is not devoid of truth. Love has the full presence of truth. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he was the embodiment of God. Do you remember Philippians 2 that Angela just read? Though being very God, he didn't see equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he emptied himself, is what, the, what Paul says in the next chapter over. So if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and Jesus was God in the flesh, and God is love, did Jesus accept all behavior no did he accept all people okay there's a distinction because we don't often distinct we we are not often distinctive enough we like to blanket statement things again i said this to my class this morning and i'll say it again the christian church is lazy in our culture I don't know if it takes us being under severe persecution for us to be unlazy. I would hope that that wouldn't be what it takes, but we are the most biblically illiterate people on the face of the earth, the Christian church in America. I'm not talking about our culture. Our culture obviously is biblically illiterate. But when I say biblically illiterate, we don't know what the Word of God states or says anymore. And if you just relegate your study of the Word of God to Sunday morning for Yes, I do about 45 minutes. Some of you wish it'd be shorter. But if you can't handle 45 minutes of the word, you're probably not going to handle much of it during the week either. And I'm not saying you're lazy here, but the church in America has become lazy because it doesn't do what it needs to do in growing in, an, in its faith and knowledge. Jesus says with the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain, but he didn't expect your faith to stay a mustard seed size. Do you know the point of that narrative and that, and that parable is that mustard seed, when planted, grows into the largest plant from that small seed, almost a tree-like bush. 
That was the expectation behind that. How many of you have trees in your yard or next to your driveway that started from a seed, but guess what it's doing to your driveway or your sidewalk? Do you catch the analogy? See, we just think, well, I just need a mustard seed, and I'm good. And that's how we live as a church. And as believers in Christ, we keep a mustard seed tucked in our little pocket and we say, here it is. Jesus says, plant that sucker because it stays dead until you plant it. The potential in the mustard seed is the faith I'm talking about. And that's what we need to have as a church. And if we have that faith of a mustard seed, we plant it and let it grow, it will overflow with abundance beyond what we could ever conceive. And it starts with the study of the Word, fully giving our lives to Christ, getting rid of the old life and becoming new creations. Surrendering everything to God. Our jobs, our marriages, our children. Not worrying about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough worries of its own. The next point is that knowledge and understanding will increase. That's what he prays for. You can increase in knowledge and understanding in many subjects. But if you are not, if you don't have a foundation of truth as rooted in the Bible, all other knowledge and all other understanding is nothing what does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 13 that everything will pass away except one faith hope and love these three things remain they are eternal they are eternal Are you rooted in what is eternal? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. God is love. Jesus was God. Jesus is a reflection of all truth and all love, and everybody should be rooted in him because that's the only way that we can have eternal hope. We need to grow in the knowledge and understanding of that. We need to know the word of God so much as the psalmist writes, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. Talking about God. How much of the word have you hidden in your heart? I'm not saying you need to memorize it all, but if you were in it daily, yearly, decades, scores of years, guess how much you will retain? But Brandon, I don't understand it. A lot of it's confusing. I told a 14-year-old boy, I told this in my class this morning, it was a 14-year-old boy after the second session I did yesterday, come up to me and he says, when did you start having a passion for the Bible and for God? I said, that's a great question. I said, I was a bit of a nerd in this arena. But I came to, I said, he's 14. I said, I was probably about 12, 13, 14, close to your age. My mom and I started going to church when I was 11. She'll probably watch this later. 
And she'll be like, oh, were you 11? Because she doesn't remember a lot of things. <clears throat> but she remembers when we started going to church pretty regularly. She'd grown up in the church, left the church for a long time, went into a, a bit of a, a period of time away from the church and away from her relationship in Christ. But when I was 11, she rededicated her life to Christ. We started going back to the church. And it was a church, not that she grew up in, but the same type of church, which is the same type of church I pastor today, Church of God out of Anderson, Indiana. So, uh, you know, several generations a part of this church movement. But the reality is when we started going back to church, I started hearing sermons and I started hearing my youth pastors uh, talk about the Bible and about Jesus. Well, mainly my youth pastor talked about not having sex. That was the whole thing in our youth group. You don't have sex, you'll go to hell. And um, that's what I remember from youth group. But uh, anyway, the sermons the pastor would preach. I'm serious. I avoid it like plague except four times. So um, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. That was probably uncalled. It was a little bit off the line. And I'm back on track now. So anyway, I was about 12, 13, or 14 years of age. 12, 13, or 14. When I started saying, all right, either this is true or it's not. And if it's true, then that means I have to do something about it. If it's not true, then I don't have to do anything. I can live how I please, do what I want to do. And so and I told this little boy, at, at about 13 years old, I started looking into the Bible myself. Now, you're probably going to hate me for this, but I said I didn't, I told the boy, I said I didn't read the King James Version. I said the Bible's confusing enough to read it in a dialect that I can't understand would have been in vain. So I read in a current day translation that was easy enough for me to understand. I got a youth Bible still on my shelf and I started tearing that thing apart. Not literally, but I started reading it. I said I would suggest if you start reading, if you haven't already, you read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I started reading from one end to the other. I started digging it apart and I started trying to argue against the points that it made because I wanted to know, is this true? At 13 years of age, told you I was a nerd, a Bible nerd. It's good to be a Bible nerd. You should try it sometime. I don't, and still, at 48 years of age, I haven't plumbed the depths of the word enough to exhaust all the truth that's in it. And I suspect if I live to be 88, 108, and I continue to study it, I will never exhaust the fruit from the Word of God. And I told this young boy, I said, listen, the knowledge and understanding that I've gained that has continued to drive me passionately, not only into the arms of Christ, but to preach the truth of this thing called the Bible in a biblical worldview, is that I've found it to be not just true, but unequivocally true. If you try to refute the Bible on the grounds that the Bible makes claims, you'll find you can't do it. If you are truly setting out to disprove it, and I challenge you to do it, because there are greater minds than mine or yours that have set out to disprove it, that have come to the reality through an open perspective that, holy crap, you cannot disprove this. Unless you're trying to screw the data, uh, skew the data. No, screw the data. Pardon me, I've been saying that too much, and you're like, yes, you have, and you need to stop. All right, I'm stopping, all right? You skew the data, you can make it say what you want to, but if you refute it on its own claims, guess what you find out? Ugh. 
And sometimes we don't want to hear that. And there are many scientists and philosophers that have come at the Bible on their terms and have tried to refute it from a philosophical perspective or a scientific perspective, devoid of the truth claims of Scripture. And sure, they can make some very convincing arguments, but are those arguments true or are they skewed just enough to be partially true and partially false? See, I believe all science ultimately proves the existence of God if you're truly looking at science from a proof point of view. Do you know where the scientific method originated from? Christianity. <laughs> because we wanted to make sure we were proving stuff not by opinion, but by actually doing due diligence to seek the truth. Scientific method has gotten thrown out the window a few decades ago. Knowledge and understanding, I pray that it would increase. It can only increase when you are rooted in true knowledge and understanding that comes from the truth, not your truth. Thirdly, I pray that you will be filled with the fruit of salvation. <clears throat> Other translations write, May you always be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul's desire is that as a result of the overflowing love of the Philippians and their willingness to grow in knowledge and understanding of God, that their lives would give testimony to God by the way they live in public and in private. That's what we call integrity. Is what you do in public mirrored by what you do in private? Because integrity means I'm going to do the same thing in private that I do in public, whether it's good or bad. That is integrity. It means that it is true, it is solid. You could be solidly bad or solidly good. But if you are one way in one place and a different way in a different place, that's not called integrity, that's called hypocrisy. And often the world sees from those who claim to be believers in Christ a hypocritical way of living life. They see them going, going to church, which is a term that I hate. You are the church if you're a believer in Christ. The building, the space, the place is not the church. The New Testament definition of church is actually ecclesia. It means an assembly. It doesn't mean building or a house, or a place of worship. It means a people of worship. We are the church. The problem is the world sees people playing church, but not being the church. And again, it's not surprising when nearly 60% of churches are not hearing a biblical worldview. And it's not surprising then that the argument from the culture and the world around us is, you're just hypocrites. You're no better than we are. In the true biblical perspective, people say, you're right, we are no better than you are. We never claim to be. The only thing that puts us in right standing with God is our relationship with Jesus Christ and our surrender of our life to him. And I don't do it perfectly. I wish I did. Paul said he didn't even do it perfectly. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I know I should do, I don't do. What a wretched person I am. 
So if Paul, one of the writers who wrote most of the New Testament, can claim that he doesn't do everything right all the time, then how was the church to do everything right all the time? It is a constant movement in the direction of Jesus, knowing that you're going to stumble and fall, you'll have scrapes and bruises along the way, because it's not an easy journey. But it is not a license to continue in sin. It's that when you do fall, when you scrape your knee, bust your face, get a black eye, you get up by the grace of God and you make amends and continue in his direction. That's what a life in Christ is like. It's not turning and going the other way. It's continuing in the direction of Christ. That's how the fruit of your salvation is lived out. That's when the world starts to see a difference in the true church versus the church that is just playing a role. John 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus extrapolated the law and the prophets and most of his teachings. You go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Do you know what he's doing in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? He's actually juxtaposing the law of God from the Old Testament and showing its true meaning. You know the Beatitudes? They all have connection to Old Testament that reflect in the New Testament through him. Jesus gives us the perfect perspective of what God looks like, how God truly is. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, where the Pharisees started going off the rails and adding man's law to this stuff, let me show you the truth of the law of God in plain sight. You've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. I say if you lust after a woman... In your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. I would say lust after a man too if you're a woman. God is an equal opportunity (laughs) uh, command giver. You've heard it said you shouldn't murder. I say if you hate a brother or sister in your heart, you already stand in judgment. In judgment of what? Being condemned because you're hating a brother. It's like murdering them in your heart. Where do you think murder originates from? In here. All decisions are made in here and in here. They start first with a thought and end in an action. This is why in the New Testament we were told to take every thought captive and give it to God. So Jesus says, as he's mirroring all of the Old Testament law and prophets, in John chapter 13, He's still in the upper room with his disciples. This is where we get the washing of the disciples' feet. And he's saying to them while he's sitting around the Passover table, now I'm going to give you a new commandment. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Only God can give commandments. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love each other. Okay, we're okay with not having any other God. We struggle with taking the Lord's name in vain sometimes, don't we? Um, We struggle with idols occasionally. Struggle with honoring our father and our mother. Wait a minute. A new commandment. Love each other. Technically, Jesus says, 
the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember I said this earlier, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know the second part of that? He says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two. So technically, it is a new commandment, but rooted in old covenant theology. As he gives us a new covenant in his own blood and life, which he's about to give through crucifixion as he tells the disciples this i'm giving you a new commandment love each other just as i have loved you you should love each other and then he goes on to say your love for one another you remember what i said earlier will prove to the world that you are my disciples do we do well loving one another okay when he says love one another he's talking about the disciples love each other There was infighting among the disciples. Read the Gospels. They started debating on who was the greatest among the disciples. They started infighting and fighting against each other. And Jesus helped try to tell them over and over again, the greatest in the kingdom was the one who serves. The first will be last. The last will be first. I, your master, I, God in the flesh, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And if you were following me, guess what you should be doing? It's not jockeying for position or trying to edge your way up the ladder. It is actually going to the bottom. Not in sin, but in love. Because the greatest act of love looks like this. Not like this. Listen to me. It is an act of service. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, love one another. Because the world will know that you are truly my disciples. They will know that you are truly one of mine. If you love each other. The world has perverted love. But the love of God, again, is distinctive. We love the way Jesus loved. How did Jesus love? He didn't avoid awkward people or awkward situations. He went headlong into them. He didn't go into the sin, but he went in with the sinner to bring them out of the sin so that they didn't stay where they were. Love draws a line, but it goes across the line to bring people to the other side. Does this make sense? Love does not affirm bad behavior. It confronts it and then says, let me give you a way out. Make sense? Because the church has gotten this confused. We as believers and individuals in the church have gotten this confused. How can I love someone who acts and looks and behaves this way? Because God first loved me. That's the only way. And when you do, the rest of the world, even the one you're trying to love out of that situation, will see love in its fullest measure. Even if they reject it, They still see it. And they may remember it when the time comes that their back is against the wall and there's nowhere else to go. And remember, they loved me when I was the most unlovable person. I want what they have because I've been miserable up to this point. And yes, I rejected it because I thought it was stupid and now I don't. I need that in my life. Continue to love even 
if it's rejected. Jesus loved when everybody else walked away. Do you know how? He stretched one arm out and another, and he willingly laid his life down. He was beaten to nearly half dead, crowned with a crown of thorns as a mockery of his kingship, though he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he prayed for his persecutors while on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then in one last breath, he says, it's finished. Not his life, because he knew he would raise again. He'd already been telling the disciples that. And you know what was finished? The curse of sin and the curse of death. It was done. This is the good news. But for the church today, it's become common news or avoided news. And maybe even bad news. It's the best news the world has ever heard, and it will be the best news the world will ever hear. And if we neglect, as the body of Christ, to love the way we've first been loved, and to allow that love to overflow as we grow into a deeper knowledge and understanding of who God is, who His truth is, or what His truth is, then we've missed the mark. And missing the mark is called what? Sin. James says to know the right thing and not do it is just as much sin as doing the wrong thing. I'm paraphrasing. Read it for yourself. It's only a five-chapter book. Check it out. To know the right thing to do and not to do it is just as wrong as doing the wrong thing. As our worship team comes forward to close us out today, W. Stanley Mooneyham said, Love talked about can be easily turned aside, but love demonstrated is irresistible. The church is called to demonstrate love and active love, not just words of love, but active love. A love that never withers or fades, but presses into the darkness and conquers the hellish tortures of this world. The gates of hell, Jesus says, will not prevail against the church. The irony is when the church loses its focus and its rooting in truth and the truth of the word, guess what conquers the church? Hell itself. Because we allow it into the space and the place where only God is reserved. Or it's only reserved for God. As believers in Christ mature in their faith, the expression of God's love through them becomes palpable and expansive. If the defining characteristic of God is love, then the reflection of that characteristic should be so evident within the body of Christ that the world would not be able to deny who we are and what we stand for. Jesus loved people into the kingdom of God. The ones he was harshest with were the church leaders people like me and those of you who may know more who were able to teach. Shouldn't our love for God and others also love people into the kingdom of God in a relationship with the Father through Christ Jesus? 
we love because he first loved us. Otherwise, we can't love. And out of a thankful heart, our love for others will reflect the glory of God. I don't know where you are today. I don't know where this message landed with you. But if you've been convicted, and conviction often comes like an, an uneasy feeling. Okay? It's, it's, it's butterflies in the stomach. It's kind of an urging of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit rarely comes and speaks audibly, but he speaks to our spirits by his own spirit. And when he speaks to our spirits, there's a nudging, an internal nudging that's like something is off. I need to do something about this. If that's a feeling or a nudging you have, allow the Spirit to lead you to a place of prayer and surrender of whatever that uneasiness is. If you've been living a life apart from Christ or you've been living one foot in the church and another foot in a, we call it hypocrisy. If you found a check in your own heart and spirit that I've not been living quite the way I should, why would you walk out these doors, continue to live the way you shouldn't? It's hard to live a life of faith. It's easy to carry a mustard seed around and to show people you got it. It's harder to plant it, water it, nurture it, and allow it to grow the way it's supposed to. You need to be cracking sidewalks, lifting up driveways, moving mountains, and you can't do that if you just stay a seed. Come on, it's time. Church, our nation needs to be revived again. And revival starts with the individual, and it starts within the church. Not the building, not the space or the place, but the people. And revival starts when people are truly 100% surrendered to him and said, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Or at the Billy Graham Crusades, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. Don't surrender part, surrender all. What does, it gain, what does it gain you? What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Father, in this place, we pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Convict us of sin. Infuse us with your holy power. Not for our sakes, but for yours. Forgive us of our sin, not only as individuals, but God, as the representative and the under-shepherd of this congregation, whatever past sins that have never been forgiven, Lord, I surrender them to you now. I pray your blessing over this body of Christ in this place, your release from sin and death, and God, for glory upon glory, not just to come into the space for these people, but God, for your glory and your glory alone. Remind us to be light, to be salt. Fill us with your holy presence. You, you promised us through the prophet Jeremiah that there would come a time when you wouldn't dwell in temples or buildings, but God, you would make your home with your people. 
you would dwell in them and be in their hearts. And so we plead and beg and ask for that today. Cleanse us, make us holy and new and righteous, knowing that our righteousness doesn't come from our own strength or what we do, but only from you through Christ Jesus, who took sin and death upon himself and conquered both in one fell swoop. So we do surrender all today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.